the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they began to begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence unto the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. And today I'm just preaching to you from the story of the Tower of Babel. I believe the Lord wants to show us something today. I believe the Lord can fill someone with the Holy Ghost today. Amen. I'm thankful for what the Lord did last week, and I believe God can fill someone with the Holy Ghost again today, that He can touch somebody's life today. Amen. Why don't you join with me in prayer this morning? Lord Jesus, we come before you. So thankful to be here, so thankful for your presence, which we can experience. And Lord, I pray that you would have your way among us right now, Lord, as we open our hearts, as we open our minds. Lord, that your word would go forth, that something would take place in our hearts as the seed encounters our heart. Lord, and I believe and trust you that your word will not return void, that you are here to do a work and you will accomplish that work today. We praise your name today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. The story of the Tower of Babel is one that you may have heard before, but to give you a little background of the story before we get started, a little geographical background, even Shinar was uh, a, a plain that was there in between two rivers. In fact, Shinar means country of two rivers, and it was situated between the Tigris, and it still is, between the Tigris and Euphrates River, surrounded in the, uh, what we now know as Iraq. And it was uh, in this, where the Tigris and Euphrates, they created this, they, they went either way, and they created this space of about 700 to 1,000 miles long, about 300 miles wide, and it was in that that it was called the Plain of Shinar. Some people even considered it an island, although it wasn't really, but it was surrounded by these two rivers. Shinar was where Babylon was, would later be established. This was, we read in this story, the city that was being built was the foundation for what would be Babylon, which of course is infamous throughout the scriptures. We find also in the previous chapter, we find the builder of the city of Shinar, of the ruler of the people that uh, partook in this great endeavor, and his name was Nimrod. I don't know if you've ever called anyone a Nimrod, but this guy, he would just respond and say, yeah, if you did, because that was his name. He's mentioned in the previous chapter as the founder of this city. And he was the ruler over the plain of Shinar, over the people there. And that name, uh, it, it, he was known as a great hunter. And that's really what his name means, is a great hunter. Uh, there's some confusion because some people even says it means a hunter of men. But this goes into uh, just what he did, and that he was a conqueror. He conquered nations. He brought people together, whether through uh, commonality or whether he conquered them. So he really was a hunter of men, but he was known as a great warrior uh, and a conqueror. This really, though, as we look at this uh, uh, city that's being formed in Nimrod, this is a major moment in Scripture. As this is the first real kingdom or, or large settlement since the flood. Of course, we know what happens at the flood. There's Noah and his family that's saved, and the rest of the world is destroyed. And so this is obviously a few years since because there's enough people to form 
a settlement, but this is the first major kingdom, if you would, after the flood. He went, Nimrod continues to be a key figure in this story, and his effects are felt throughout the history of Israel and through the, the, the eastern part of the world because he was also, not only did he found what would later be called Babylon, but he was also the founder of the city of Nineveh. He established both of those cities. Of course, we know Nineveh from the story of Jonah and the whale. It was to Nineveh that Jonah was supposed to go. And so he's an infamous character starting both Babylon and Nineveh, cities that are both known for their wickedness, cities that are both known for going their own way. Shinar, though, became a place of great culture, this area. Uh, maybe not at this particular moment, but as it continued to grow, it became a place of culture. It epitomized the height of society and technology and might during these times. In fact, it was years later, as the Israelites enter into uh, the Promised Land and they cross over the River Jordan and encounter the city of Jericho, we know the stories It takes place. They march around the walls and the walls fall down. But uh, the Israelites were given a commandment to take nothing from the city of Jericho, take no spoil from the city of Jericho. And yet one man decided to take some things, and the story goes from there. It's an involved story, but one of the things which caught Achan's eye, that was the man who stole things, was it's called a Babylonian garment which was from the plain of Shinar. He saw a garment that he knew was like an Armani suit, and he thought, man, I've just got to have that. He thought, man, that's too good to pass up, and so he takes that. So we see that this is the background, this is the city that is being referenced when we begin to look at this story here. And there's a few things that I think we can gather from this story today. And the first thing that we can gather from this story is that man contains power within himself to accomplish. That sounds a little bit strange because we understand that God gives man abilities, that God gives man knowledge, but understanding that he gives those in this story clearly shows that it is possible for man to accomplish things outside of God. We know that it's only God that has placed it inside of him, but man can accomplish things outside the will and outside the purpose of God. It doesn't take too long, and I, I think it would be uh, foolish to, to, uh, to state otherwise, but there's people that don't care about God throughout this world that have accomplished things. And I know that ultimately, all things come back to God, and God holds our life in His hands, and, and the very fact that we woke up this morning is only because of God. I understand that. But yet, God, there's people doing things around this world today that haven't thought about God, and, and, and they're accomplishing things. There are scientists who have invented and accomplished things, and I know we go all the way back, well, then it was God that gave them that. No, but we read in Genesis chapter 1 that God gave man dominion in Genesis, and God never revoked that dominion. He never said, I'm taking that away from you. So, and he also placed a will inside, every, inside each of us. And so we have the ability uh, to accomplish things on our own. You have the ability and the talents to do what you want to do. You don't have to do what God wants you to do. That's why our culture says you can be whatever you want to be outside of God. Because you can, if you work hard enough, if you do enough, then you can be something in your life. And so we have to understand that God has placed some level of authority, some level of dominion within us to accomplish certain things. Understanding that He does hold our life in, in His hands and He set up certain parameters. But the danger with this that we pick up from this story as well is that the danger is that while God has put dominion and authority inside man, man can never be God. 
that while I strive to be the best that I can be, I have to understand that no matter what I accomplish, no matter what I gain in life, see, really the problem is, is God allows me to gain enough. He allows me to accomplish just enough to make me think I can be God. Isn't that really the problem? As you start doing good, you start accomplishing things, things start going real good. All those little inventions that that everyone thought were stupid, suddenly you've got patents on 35 of them. (laughs) How many of you know you would have been rich if you would have just put your idea in first because you've seen it somewhere else? (laughs) You know, it's crazy what people make money off of. Now, I don't order cocktails, (laughs) just to make that clear. But have you ever seen someone or ordered a drink that's got a little umbrella in it? Somebody's making millions off that stupid umbrella. They thought, you know what, if I just sit... It's like someone got all the stuff on sale at Hobby Lobby and made that umbrella and they're making millions off of it now. But people can accomplish things and the thing is we begin to accomplish just enough where our flesh kicks in and says, you know what, you don't really need God that much anymore. It does just enough. And while we know, even as Christians, that God is in control, sometimes our actions demonstrate that we're still really in control. And so we can accomplish just enough to think that, you know what, we can create our own security. We, we accomplish just enough that we think, well, maybe I do have my life in control and destiny is within my hands. And we begin to forget that it's only truly through God that I live and move and have my being. I forget that while I have authority and dominion, He is the creator of all things. And I cannot create. I cannot do. I can only do what He has blessed me to do. God is the one who has earth as his footstool. I forget that my life in comparison to him is just a vapor. And so while I have some semblance of authority, while I have some semblance of dominion, and God does allow certain things to happen, I've got to remember that he is ultimately in control. So we find that man does have the ability, which is probably man's greatest uh, uh, downfall, is that man has ability, and so he thinks he can take the place of God. But the second thing we learn, we learn from this story, is that inside man there is always something inside man pushing him upwards. There's something inside of every human being that is pushing them upwards. There's something missing inside every man, inside every woman. And really we begin a quest at some point in our life to begin to search for what is missing in our life. It's something that maybe you can't quite explain. That you wake up one morning and all of a sudden you begin to question, what am I doing here? Why am I on this earth? What purpose do I have? (laughs) It can hit at strange times. I remember when I was working at Pizza Hut, it hit me one morning. (laughs) You know, because I think you should do a good job. I think you should do, you know, your best of your abilities. So I made the best pizzas. No, (laughs) the ones I made for myself were really good. My last day at Pizza Hut, I had to carry that box with two hands with that, for that pizza I made. It was so loaded down. If I'd have been attacked, I could have attacked back just with the pizza. Knocked someone out. But I was standing there putting cheese on a pizza, and I was like, what am I doing? I mean, who cares? Who cares about stupid cheese on a pizza? I mean... <laughs> I know you care, and the person whose pizza I was making cared. (laughs) I was like, man, in the whole scope of the world, 
I'm putting cheese on a pizza. Like there's people at this point, you can say whatever you want about them, but people saving whales are doing more than I'm doing right now. I mean, of all the things that I'm committing my life to, it's putting cheese on a pizza. And it just hit me in that moment. And there's different times in our life when it just hits us of what am I really doing? What is going on? And it can be before we come to God. It can even be after we come to God. We think, what in the world am I doing? And that's because there's something inside every single person that is pushing you upwards. Whether you realize it or not, there is something inside of you that is saying there's something more. There's something greater. You can possess it in your life. You can be something more inside Jesus Christ. Despite the dominance of this people, They were the dominant people in this area. Despite their wealth, despite their fame, despite their accomplishments, there was still something missing which drove them to even begin to build this tower in the first place. Despite all that they had, they said, you know what? There's something still missing. And their solution was, let's build a tower and try and get to God. Let's try and fill the void with this tower. And we are no different. We begin to construct towers in our own life. A tower speaks of security. It speaks of strength. It speaks of our efforts to fill the void inside of our own life. Now, I'm not really sure if this people thought they could really build a physical tower to God. I'm not sure. You saw the picture up there. That's an actual photograph from 5000 BC, just in case you were wondering. But I'm not sure if these people really thought that they could build a tower that would actually physically reach God. I don't know. But whether they thought that or not, there was the the symbolical meaning of what they were doing. Of trying to make themselves bigger. Of trying to make themselves better. And I think it's interesting that they knew they had to go up. They didn't dig a hole in the ground. They didn't spread out wide. They knew there's something above me. There's something greater. And something in me is reaching for that. And so we find them as they build this tower as a symbol of their search of where they thought their answer lay. And let me say they were correct in where they thought their answer lay. It was above. But they begin to look to their own ability and their own might to get themselves that way. And, and, and like I said, we are no different. You and I, at different points in our life, we begin to feel a dissatisfaction with life, a discontent. And so we try to do something to fill the void that we feel in our life. We decide to get more education. We decide to progress in our careers. Sometimes we build a a tower out of our personality and charisma. We build towers out of our families. We get involved in a relationship and think, if I just get a relationship with somebody, then maybe I'll achieve and fill this void that is missing. We throw ourselves into just causes. Sometimes I'm convicted when I read about how people are doing so much good for a particular thing. And I begin to wonder, what am I doing in my life? But people begin to throw themselves into a just cause and they put all their heart, mind, soul into it. And we begin to build towers searching for something, something greater because something inside every one of us tells us there's something more. There's something inside every one of us that tells us to look up to our Creator. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I won't read the whole chapter, but the first part, Solomon begins to speak of everything that he has. Solomon was the wealthiest king of his time. He was the wisest, wealthiest, had the most. 
and he, he, he lists, he speaks of all that he has. He says, look at all my houses, look at all my vineyards, look at all my servants, all the cattle, the silver, the gold, the other treasures. He says, look at the wisdom that I have. He sees all that he has, all that he possesses. And he says, all this, all this labor, all this striving, all this trying to get, all this trying to reach is just vanity. At the end of the day, there's nothing to it. While he's thankful for what he has, he says there's nothing that can really fill the void in my life. The money doesn't fill it. Relationships don't fill it. A bigger house, a bigger vineyard, a nicer chariot for Solomon. None of it fills the void that he feels in his life. David felt this too. His son, as he writes, or his father, as he writes in the Psalms, he felt the same thing too in his life. But David has a different outlook upon it. He says in Psalms chapter 42, verses 1 and 2, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You see, the difference between David and Solomon is that Solomon forgot what could really fill his void. There was a point in his life when he knew how that that thing that he felt inside of him pushing, he knew where to turn, but he had forgotten that. But David writes, I feel that longing inside of my heart. I feel that questioning of what am I doing here, of what's my purpose. He said, and it's like my soul begins to pant. It's like there's a thirsting inside of me. And he says, I know where to look though. I look to God. He's the one that can quench my thirst. I look to the living God. That's the place that I need to go to this morning. When I feel that stirring inside of me, I must look up towards Him. You see, our souls are thirsting for something. And the tower is not what I'm thirsting for. I try to fill it with all kind of things, but David says there's something particular that I must have. He says, I filled that void with a living God. You see, all those towers we construct, all those things that we try to fill our life with, a just cause or this or that, you see, they can be gods, but there's only one true living God. There's only one living God that can give me the sustenance that I need. There's only one true living God that can refresh me when I need it. In fact, we know we can read in John chapter 6, it's when the lady comes to him and the woman at the well, and Jesus says, I will give you water that you will never thirst again of course she physically thirsted again but Jesus was saying your soul that thing that's trying to push you upwards that thing that you're searching for in relationships and you've tried five times and can't find it I can quench that thirst I can give you something that will satisfy you like nothing else that you have ever tried in life it doesn't matter how great or how magnificent the, tire, the tower that you build is. Nothing can quench the thirst of your soul. You can go to the bookstore and you can find all kinds of things. It's called self-help and I've got books about how to make yourself better. But there is nothing that I can read that will make me better. There is no self-help I can do. It doesn't matter if I can put together a business plan, a five-year plan. If I get myself a college scholarship, which I know I could still do in athletics somewhere, I'm sure. I refereed a soccer game yesterday, and I ran probably a good 200 yards. I think I still got it in me. You know what's bad when you referee a soccer game? Well, anything. But a soccer game, you kind of got to run a little bit. 
You don't just have to squat there behind and call balls and strikes. But you go run a little bit, and you're getting older, so I have to stretch before I just do that. So I can't run anymore. And of course, the older I get, the less I can see. It's going to be pretty bad for those kids out there before too long. Ah, whatever you got. That's good. I will call that a goal. That's good enough. You guys want to quit? I'm done. (laughs) But it doesn't matter what I try to do. It doesn't matter what five-year plan I try to implement, what goals I set, what desires I have. It doesn't matter what job or hobby or anything that I throw myself into. I must realize this morning that there is only one living water, and that is Jesus Christ. That there's something pushing inside of me, and the only thing that I need is Jesus Christ. And in fact, the author of Proverbs tells us that there is a tower already prepared for you and I. While I'm trying to build something to fill that void, Proverbs says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. You see, there's something already available to fill the void in your life. The thing that's pushing you up and you think if I could just build this and climb this. No. The name of the Lord is the tower that you need. That's where you can run when you're in trouble. That's where you can go when something happens. I can call on the name of Jesus. That's where my salvation is. 2 Samuel says the God of my rock in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my high tower, my refuge and my savior. I'm thankful that there's a tower that I can go to today. I'm thankful that there's a place of safety today. As this world falls apart and things begin to happen in our lives, I'm glad there's a high tower of safety. I'm glad there's a tower of refuge that I can find that isn't based upon what I do, but it's simply based upon the fact that He is. And if He is, then I can call His name today. If He's still God, then I can call on His name today. You see, His name is the upward my soul has been looking for all along. Jesus is what I've really been looking for. It's interesting that man always looks upward. In Scripture, a little side note, in Scripture, the word is likened to a seed that is planted inside of our hearts. We have parables that Jesus told that, can, that, that liken the Word of God to a seed. And some seed takes root, some doesn't. But that's the symbolism, is that the Word of God is a seed. What you are hearing this morning, the verses that you hear today, is a seed that is planted inside of your heart. How many of you know sometimes there's been a seed planted in your heart, and you may even forgot about it till something happened in your life, and all of a sudden God brings to remembrance a verse that you read or heard. God brings something to your mind. That's because a seed is planted inside of your heart whenever you hear the Word of God. But there's something interesting about seeds. Seeds always grow up. Now that doesn't mean they always get bigger. If you know that, you've killed enough plants to know they don't always get bigger. (laughs) But a seed always grows up. It doesn't matter how you plant a seed in a pot. It doesn't matter if you take it and the sprout's going out sideways or pointing to the bottom. Eventually, the sprout will make its way back up to the top because the seed always grows up. So let me just tell you right now, the Word of God in your life always grows upwards. Now maybe you don't understand that a little bit, but let me just put it in a little bit different language. 
But that means no matter what happens in my life, the seed is always pushing up in my life. That means if I walk away from God, but a seed's been planted, the seed's always pushing me in my life. There's something always going against what I'm trying to do because the Word of God is always pointing upwards. In fact, there was a study, well, I don't know if it's a study done or something they just noticed, but they, you know, they do all kind of experiments in space to try and get us to live up there, and we could probably show them several people that are already living in space here. No, never mind. <laughs> but they do all sorts of things, and they, they try to grow seeds in all these different environments, and they found that even in space, even when there's zero gravity, so that means you can just fly around. I got to tell you this, you ever met someone that's too smart for their own good? This is just space related. It's not message related. Let's just talk about the space program for a while. <laughs> when, the, when they were trying to figure out, when they were sending men into space, they discovered that they, their pens would quit working in space because there's no gravity. So it's gravity that forces the ink down in the pen and makes it right. If there's no gravity, the ink doesn't come down. You ever tried writing on a wall and eventually it runs out? That's what would happen in space just whenever they used it. So they spent millions of dollars they spent millions of dollars, NASA did, back in the 60s and 70s, trying, and they came up with the space pen. Have you ever seen the space pen? It's this little pen about like this. You can buy them, and you can write upside down. You can write underwater. You can do all sorts of things with it. It's an amazing pen that you can buy nowadays, and they spent millions to develop it. At the same time as the, as the U.S. was doing this, there was a space race going on with the Russians, and the Russians had the exact same problem. Their pens wouldn't work in space, so you know what they did? They used a pencil. <laughs> that has nothing to do with the message. Just space. But they did these experiments and they would try and grow plants. And they found out just a pen, a gravity affects the, the workings of a pen. So gravity affects all sorts of things. But they found even in space that a plant always grows up. A seed always grows up. Now, whichever way it's pointing, if it's in a pot, it, if it's pointing this way, it grows that way. But it always grows the way that it's supposed to. So let me just tell you as an encouragement, it doesn't matter where your kids are, where your spouse is, what's going on. It doesn't matter the external environments to the seed. It doesn't matter how far the seed is buried. The seed is always pushing upwards in their life. There's always something inside of them saying, there's something more. You missed it. There's something greater. So I take comfort in the fact that it doesn't matter where they go or where they end up in life. There's a seed that's always pushing them up. I believe today there's people that are sitting on a bar stool and they feel the seed pushing themselves up because the external environment doesn't matter. There's somebody that may be sitting there with a needle hanging out of their arm. But you know what? That doesn't matter to the seed, to the Word of God. The Word of God can still grow upwards in that life. The seed is powerful, but there's something inside of us that's always pushing us upwards. The story also tells us that despite the fact that there's something always pushing me upwards, that no matter how hard I try, I cannot get to God. I can't get to Him. I, I, I might be able to get God's attention. That's what they did in this story. They got God's attention. But I can never build anything to get high enough to God. I can never do enough to get to God. There is nothing that I can do if I started today and worked till the end of my life that would ever get me to God. 
If they couldn't do it with all of their wealth and might and all that they had, there's nothing that I can do in my life. While I can get God's attention, that doesn't mean that I have reached Him. And just because God notices what I'm doing, first of all, doesn't mean that He approves. (laughs) And second of all, doesn't mean that I've really reached Him. God visits us. Sometimes that's not a good thing. Sometimes you've caught his attention for the wrong reason. And you say, well, I felt God. Well, that wasn't the good feeling God. But there's nothing that we can do to reach him. And scripture clearly tells us that you and I, there's a reason why we cannot reach God. Isaiah 59 says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. You see, the reason that I can't reach God has nothing to do with the fault of God. It has nothing to do with the fact that he cannot hear. It has nothing to do with the fact that he cannot see. And it has nothing to do with the fact that he cannot save anymore. The problem is not with God. But the reason that I cannot reach God like we want to, like what's inside is pushing us to, is because my sins and iniquities have separated us from God. Sin separates me from God. It's not God that can't save. It's my sin that has caused Him to turn from man. He is holy and He is just and He cannot abide sin. So there is presented to us a very clear separation of a holy God and sinful man. And there is nothing that I can do to bridge that gap. There is nothing that I can accomplish my life that would make God say, I'm just going to forget about those sins. Come on up here. There's nothing that I can do in my life that would break down that wall of separation despite what I may feel inside of me despite the upward push the desire inside of me there is nothing that I can do to reach God on my own I can't be good enough I can't be smart enough I can't be whatever you want to be that's why it's not enough just to be good and nice because that still doesn't get you to God Man's goodness is never enough to reach God. I can try to be better, but I can't reach God. That's why there were prescribed rituals in the Old Testament. And if they were deviated from it all, death was usually the result. If you read in Scripture, if you did anything, they're just going to take you out and stone you. (laughs) Well, he stole gum, and so, you know, my kids stole gum, and so we made them go back to the store and made them give it to them and and give them, you know, 25 cents for the gum. In the Old Testament, they just stoned that kid. No. Well, they didn't have gum, so that's not true. (laughs) But everything was so severe, and that's because there was a separation, and God had very uh, specific rules that you had to follow. And if you deviated from it and tried to do it your own way, no death was the result because man can't even approach God. He's so holy and righteous. You see, really, and I know that we have been taken on from this in the New Testament, but the law was a form of grace for man. It did allow man on some level to approach God, to have some sort of relationship with God. Yet there was still a distance. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 tells us that at time you were without Christ. You were an alien from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
There's probably no better verse that sums up quite succinctly man's real problem. Man's real problem is that we are without hope in this world. It doesn't matter what we do. We still ultimately, at the end of day, have no hope in this world. We have no hope in the works of this world. We have no hope in our own goodness, in our own niceness, in whatever may happen. We and, you and I were at some point hopeless without Jesus Christ. No hope and without God in this world. And as man has this constant drive, this push upward, yet can never truly be satisfied, that's really where it leaves you. If you feel like you really need something, but you can't get it, it leaves you in a state of hopelessness. And God, that's the situation, is man is hopeless. Man feels something, but man cannot achieve what it wants to do. And so they're left hopeless. And there's people that sit here today, there's people throughout this city, that really if you were to sum up how you feel it's hopeless it's just a sense of hopelessness of seeing something there that's just barely out of your grasp and you can't see to get it seem to get it you've tried and tried your best and yet nothing seems to satisfy i'm thankful that god did not leave us in a hopeless situation i'm thankful that god didn't just say no i'm holy and righteous and you're sinful just deal with it no i'm thankful god made a way out of my hopelessness that god did something that I could achieve hope in my life. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14 says, For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. 1 Peter 3.18 For God, Christ also hath suffered for our sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the spirit Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of a mediator who came with a solution that's what a mediator does he says here's your problem and here's your problem you're holy and you're just and righteous you're a sinner and the mediator tries to bring about a compromise that compromise was not that, that God would get any less and that man would have more goodness bestowed upon him that mediator said you know what I'm the only solution to this problem because scripture says Jesus was the solution he was the mediator that he was just and became unjust for me so that I could be brought to God he became sin he allowed my punishment to fall on him so that I could have peace with God it was him that Jesus Christ that broke the separation between man and God that man has his constant push upward and God cannot accept man as he is and Jesus Christ broke that barrier in between man and God Philippians 2 6 who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but he made himself of no reputation he took upon him the form of a servant that is of man and was made in the likeness of man and being found in the fashion of man Jesus Christ the creator of the world humbled himself and he became obedient and was willing to die even the death of the cross for you and I Hebrews 2 6 but one in a certain place testifying saying what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou should visitest him there was nothing in me that deserved Jesus Christ coming to this earth there was no goodness in me that should have said God 
that allowed God to say, I want to come down and make a way for that person. There was nothing. What is man that thou art mindful of me? But he said, thou hast made him, Jesus Christ, a little lower than the angels. That means he sent his son to die for you and I. That means that even though I didn't deserve to be thought of, Jesus Christ still thinks about me. That means that even though I'm nothing in and of myself, Jesus Christ said, you're worth something. You're valuable. You deserve salvation in your life. I'm thankful for the sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid. I'm thankful that it doesn't rely just on my goodness because I'd be in trouble if it did. I'm thankful that it doesn't rely upon us all just becoming a better society. And if our society's good enough, then God might save us. I'm thankful that it wasn't just there's no way made available. But I'm thankful that I can come to a church. That I can come to an altar. That I can find a way made available. That I can come to Jesus Christ. That I can feel His presence. That I can have access into His throne room today that's what Jesus Christ did for you and I in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 says or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance I want you to understand that about repentance we know what repentance is it's saying Lord I'm sorry for what I did and Lord I'm making a conscious effort to turn my life around and live for you That doesn't mean that you'll succeed, but it means you're making a conscious effort. You're trying your best. You know your best is not enough, but you're not just going to let God do all the work. You're going to do something too. But notice this tells us about the motivation for our repentance. And I know there's there's people who'd say, you know what, we don't hear hell preached about enough anymore. And that's fine. I don't have a problem. Well, I do have a problem with hell. (laughs) Don't want to go there. I believe in hell. I believe it's a real place. I don't believe it's a state of mind. And I believe that you have an eternal soul. And that soul will spend eternity somewhere. In heaven or in hell. We don't hear enough fire, hell fire and brimstone anymore. If we would preach that, then the world would just come to God. Well, it hasn't yet. Because there's a problem with that. Well, Jude does tell us at the end of Jude, he says, do whatever you can to save people. Basically, he says, if you've got to scare them into heaven, do it. Do you want to burn forever? (laughs) Gnashing of teeth. Now, it just always reminds me of those little wind-up teeth. Ever seen those? And they go like that, and they go across the table. That's not really what's in hell. Gnashing of teeth. That's what Cooper does when he gets mad and grinds his teeth. You can hear it. That's gnashing of teeth. He says, if you've got to do that to save somebody, then do it. But Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 says, and this is in context of all that the apostles have wrote and all that Paul has wrote already. He says, is there a problem that you can't repent? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? Don't you know that it's not how bad you are that brings you to repentance? When you look back and say, look at all the bad stuff I've done, I need to repent. 
It's not that I'm scared of going to hell so I should repent. He says, don't you know that it's the goodness of God that brings me to repentance. That God's been so good to me that I didn't deserve anything. And yet he sent his son. He's put blessings in my life I didn't know about. That's what drives me to an altar. It's not how bad I am. Not how bad the devil is. But how good God is. Oh, I'm thankful for the goodness of God. That's what drives me to my knees. When I think about all Jesus has done for me. When I think about all that God has done for me. It makes me say, Lord, I must live for you. I have to live for you. Your love is too great for me not to. It's not enough to repent. Well, it it works because Jude said it. But it's not the best life to live for God out of guilt. It's not the best way to live for God out of fear. And the problem is, is when I repent because of how bad I've been. When I repent because I'm scared about hell. Or I feel guilty about how much Jesus did. So maybe I should do something for him. Is that still leaves all the focus on me. It's narcissistic. It's saying I'm still at the center. No, but when I turn my eyes to Jesus Christ, when I look to His sacrifice, when I look to the way that He made His goodness, that's when I turn my eyes from myself and look to Him and say, Lord, You've been too good for me not to do something for You in my life. And I'm closing as the music comes. I had to preach a little longer to make up for Brother Matt this morning. I was talking to someone the other day. We were talking how we were in the wrong business. Because plumbers make this much money and electricians make this much money. And they were just joking. They said, you don't get paid by the hour, do you? I said, are you kidding? Who would pay a preacher by the hour? I'd have six-hour sermon every Sunday. <laughs> At least. I'd be willing to work overtime then. <laughs> There's something inside man pushing them upwards always. But no matter what I can do in myself, I can't ever reach God. It's only through Jesus Christ. And the last thing we see in the story of Babel is that in this story we read about how that languages were formed. That God came down and He created confusion. He said He saw the unity of the people, which is another whole sermon about how, and we heard from Brother Burner, a few Sundays ago, even the power of negative unity in this story is a great example. But we see in this story that God came down and He said, I'm going to send confusion to them. I'm going to split their language. And they're going to have to separate into language groups. They won't be able to communicate. If you're looking for unity, it starts with communication. You can just put that in your marriage and in your family and in your workplace and wherever else. If you want unity, you better start talking. But the last thing we see that God, we can gather from this story is that God came down and He did this in Babel, but it wasn't a permanent thing that God did. You see, because we read in this story, we gather from this story that God reverses Babel as well. You see, Babel is an anti-type. A type means it's the same thing. An anti-type just means it's the opposite. And as I look at how God came down, As he said, I'm going to separate you. As I'm going to give you different languages. I'm going to scatter you abroad throughout all the earth. 
As I think about that, it reminds me of another time when there was people gathered together. It reminds me of another day that also involved languages from many different places. Of people gathering together in one mind and one accord. And it's found in Acts chapter 2 when it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord, in one mind, in one place. There was a unity that was present there. And all of a sudden we know what happened when there was a gathering together there. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And they all began to speak in other tongues. You see, while that happened in, in Babel and while they spoke in other tongues at the day of Pentecost, it was really a reversal of what God did because suddenly, even though it was still different languages, people began to speak in one voice again for the first time. There was a, a moment in time when everyone was in one accord. There was a moment in time again when everyone was waiting for God to move. There was a moment in time when there was a multiplicity of language, but God gives one voice in His Spirit. And instead of scattering like what happened at Babel, Pentecost was a place of gathering. While Babel was a place of separation and division, Pentecost was a place of restoration and unity. Babel was where the work ended. It was finished. The tower start, stopped that day. No work continued. But Pentecost is the place where something begins in your life. Pentecost is when something happens anew and fresh and we build upon it. At Babel, the people tried to become God. At Pentecost, they simply waited for whatever God wanted to do in their midst. And I believe there can be a Pentecost happen in somebody's heart and life today. That God can take the confusion. That God can take all the searching for purpose. All the looking for meaning. The pushing upward. And you can find your answer here in Pentecost today. You can find hope and redemption in Jesus Christ today. I believe today there is restoration and hope and purpose in this place. John chapter 6 and verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And I will raise him up in the last day. Scripture plainly tells us that no one can come to God. And we already, already gathered that from Babel. You cannot get to God by yourself. There's only one way. And that's if the Spirit of God begins to draw on your heart. It's the Spirit which is pulling you upward right now. It's the Spirit which is saying, you have found the answer. You have found the place. There is hope hope in the middle of your hopelessness there is purpose in all of your searching there is something greater that you can find in this place today as we stand this morning that same spirit of God is trying to gather you today that same spirit of God is pulling for you today you're not here by accident in fact, I usually pray most Sunday mornings that the Lord would make a way for everyone that's supposed to be here. I mean, that's kind of a blanket prayer, I know, but I can't cover everything that could go wrong in your morning. That means I pray the toast doesn't burn. I pray the car starts. I pray you don't get a flat because all those things are going to hinder you from coming to church. I pray you don't oversleep. Accidentally, of course. I pray nothing comes up because the Spirit of God, I want it to have a clear path because it's pulling on us and I don't want anything to be a hindrance in your life. 
And today when you feel, what you feel is the Spirit connecting with that inward pool. That thing inside of you that's searching for something. That's the Spirit of God connecting with it. That's what you feel today in this place. That's a real connection. That's not a searching that maybe you've, you, you thought you could find here or somewhere else and it felt good for a while. No, that's a real connection. That's the right connection, what you've needed in your life all along. This is when what, you, what you've been searching for is, can be realized here today. The Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, it shouldn't be something to fear. It shouldn't be something that we're apprehensive of. But I want to tell you today, the search can be over for somebody today. The search for purpose, the search for meaning, that pull upwards of trying to connect with something, that search can end today. Your thirst can be quenched here and now. And I'm not just talking to people who may have never come to God. Because there's moments in our life when we lose focus, when we lose our purpose. When we lose our passion as we heard about today. And what we need to do is connect with the Spirit of God again in this place today. We need to connect with the Holy Ghost again today. Because that's the only thing that can pull us out of where we are. It's not a ministry. It's not a class. It's not a book. It's the Spirit of God that can pull you out of where you are today. Maybe you need repentance in your life today. Can I say it this way? Maybe you need to repent from your repentance. <laughs> Maybe the only reason you're here today and you got out of bed is because hell really scared you this morning. Maybe you've, you've been living for God for the wrong reason. I would challenge you today, if you need repentance in your life, why don't you let the goodness of God be the motivation of why you repent in your life, of why you say, God, I'm going to do what you call me to do. God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to purpose to do everything I can for you because you've been so good to me in my life. You can receive the Holy Ghost today. His presence is here to fill you with the Holy Ghost. His Spirit is here today. It's pulling you upward right now. All the songs, everything we felt to this moment is the Spirit pulling you upwards. And the answer is the Holy Ghost in your life today. If you would come forward and you would repent and say, God, I'm so thankful for how good you've been to me. There's nothing less I can do but repent. Then begin to worship Him. Begin to praise Him. He will fill you with the Holy Ghost today. It's what you've been looking for. I want us to pray right now. Lord Jesus, we come before you. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. And Lord, I pray as the seed has been planted in somebody's heart today. Lord, that it would begin to grow and flourish in somebody's heart. That it wouldn't be something that would take days or months or years. But Lord, you would bring forth the harvest of this seed right now, Lord. God, that you can fill someone with the Holy Ghost right now. That you would open our eyes to see that, Lord, you are what we have been searching for all along. That it's not something to be afraid of or scared of. Lord, you see people in this place that just need to find a place of repentance one more time. And say, Lord, you've been too good to me, God, for me to do anything less than what you've called me to do. For me to be anything other than what you want me to be in my life. Amen. I'm opening the altar at this time. If you want to come worship God just for how good he's been to you. Maybe you want to commit to him again. But the reason is, is because of how good he's been to you. Maybe you need the Holy Ghost and repentance in your life. Then I challenge you to make your way forward at this time. God is in this place to do a work in your life.